Welcome to the Record of Our Forebears podcast. I'm your host, Roland Godette III, and with me today is my wonderful wife. Summer Godette. And uh, on Record of Our Forebears, we're going to be discussing some of the dopest black folks that you may or may not have heard of. So grab a pen and some paper and get ready to learn something new. second episode and today we're gonna bring you uh, one of a woman I would say her faith is so strong that I, I struggle to kind of find a words to describe it but she's one of my personal heroes Fannie Lou Hamer wow yeah Fannie Lou Hamer is a uh... let me just get into it okay so go ahead. all right so Fannie Lou Hamer she was born Fannie uh, Lou Townsend in Montgomery County, Mississippi on October 6, 1917. She was the youngest child and she had 19 siblings. And wow. So there were six girls and 14 boys. Wow. So, so imagine 14 little Rollins. No. Yeah, 14 of them. <laughs> 14 Rollins and then three Autumns and three Avivas. Wow. So yeah, that's crazy. Um, so they worked, uh, the Townsends, her parents and her brothers and sisters, they worked as sharecroppers in Sunflower County, Mississippi. And at six years old, Fannie Lou Hamer started picking cotton with her parents. Mm, mm, mm. Um, she still went to school. They had a school on the uh, plantation for like the kids whose parents were sharecroppers. So she still went to school. But at six years old, after she would get out of school, she would begin to pick cotton mm. with her with her family to help out. Um and she actually was really good in school. They said that she like was really good at like spelling bees and uh, reading and writing. Like that was something that she really excelled in. But by the time she was 12 years old, she had to drop out of school to help her parents because being the youngest, obviously, and them having 20 children, they were they were older by the time she was born. So by the time she was 12, they were starting to age and they had, uh, you know, they needed more help. Part of the reason they needed help wasn't just because of their age, though. So around 1928, 1929, their parents actually had worked hard enough to get out of the indebtedness of being sharecroppers, wow. which is something that's very rare. And they got out of the indebtedness and they actually owned land. And they actually owned their own. They were able to buy some uh, livestock. They were to buy some cows, a, a donkey, and they were doing well. They were even able to buy a car. And, they, and James Townsend, her father, was actually looking to buy some farm equipment, a tractor, because they had, they had made it. But because of the time in Mississippi, some white folks in Mississippi saw that they were making it and that they were no longer dependent on the sharecropper in the plantation, they poisoned their livestock. Wow. Snuck on the farm in the middle of the night and poisoned their livestock. They woke up the next morning and all their animals had died which essentially put them behind again, and they had to go back into sharecropping. Wow. That happened when Fannie Lou Hamer was 12, and that's why she had to quit school mm. and come and help her parents because they were so old at that point that they couldn't, it was no way that they could get back to that point again without help of the family. Mm. So in 1945, she um, married a man named Perry Hamer, called him Pap. 
he worked on the same plantation. Uh, he was a tractor driver. And so they ended up getting married and they moved to a city in Mississippi called Rueville. And on that, on the plantation in Rueville where they worked as sharecroppers, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, because of how uh, she excelled in her reading and writing, she became the timekeeper. So the timekeeper on the plantation was in charge of uh, when, the, when they would come and bring in their, uh, what they picked, the plantation timekeeper would be the one that would um, would dole out the measurements. So they would bring in, like, they picked a certain amount of cotton, mm. put on the scales, the timekeeper would record all of those things. Okay. So one of the things that she did as a timekeeper was whenever the plantation owner wasn't around, because the plantation owner would tip the scales in his favor all the time mm. to keep the people in debt. But Fannie Lou Hamer would even out the scales when he wasn't around. Uh-huh. And she would try to do it for as many people as possible. Wow. She would even out the scales when he wasn't around. When he came back, she would, you know, put it back to make sure they were tipped in his favor again. But mm-hmm. they trusted her, so they they had no clue she was doing this. Mm-hmm. And nobody really had any clue until later on in life when she began to tell her story. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit of foreshadowing there yeah. about Fannie Lou Hamer and who she was and what she would do. Absolutely. She was being she was being she was resisting mm-hmm. in her own way where she could. So uh, by 1954, so about nine years after she she got married to uh, Pap Hamer, they had adopted two daughters. They adopted a nine-year-old. Her mother was unable to provide for her, and so they adopted her. And then they adopted a a five-month-old who was a burn victim. Her mother mother and father weren't able to pay for her her medical conditions. Mm. But they adopted her, even though they were poor, too. But mm-hmm. they just adopted her and were like, we're not going to let this baby, you know, just be out there mm-hmm. like with, without anybody to take care of her. Um, and then so when they went to when they wanted to go have their own children around 1961, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, actually, she had to have surgery. She had a cyst that she needed to get removed. Mm. When she woke up from the surgery, the doctors had given her a hysterectomy without her knowledge. How old was she? Um, so 1961, she was, she was older. Okay. Like she was, she wanted to have kids a little, a little mm-hmm. later in life. So yeah. she was older, but they still, they sterilized her. Yeah. Like unknowingly and, and forced sterilization was something that they did. Which was prominent. Yeah. It was yeah. something they did in the U.S. Um, and they did it as a means of oppression and control, mm-hmm. uh, to sterilize black men and women. And they were doing that all the way up into the 20th century. Yes. Uh, I believe that Oregon was the last state to get rid of their forced sterilization laws, and that was in, like, 1980. That's unbelievable. <laughs> so That's just... Yeah. So the, who knows how many people have been forced sterilized mm-hmm. like that, but mm-hmm. the, the Hammers were devastated. Pap and Fannie Lou were devastated. You, you lose a generation there. Right. Mm. And that wow. could have, you know... That could have been the end of you know them, but they adopted a lot of children, mm-hmm. um, and they cared for everybody who who they came in contact mm-hmm. with. So, um, how Fannie Lou Hamer got involved in the civil rights movement is interesting. Mm-hmm. So, she was always a resistor, as I told you a story about the timekeeper. Mm-hmm. She was always willing to help uh, her community as she adopted the two children. And in 1962, uh, the student nonviolent. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. SNCC. Yep. They came to Rueville, and they wanted to help get some of the poor black sharecroppers registered to vote. Um, So she attended a meeting at her church, and they were informed for the first time that they had the right to vote. Many of them didn't know that. Fannie Lou didn't even know she had the right to vote. That's unbelievable. She was an adult. She was in her 40s. 
mm-hmm. and didn't know she had the right to vote. And so she was informed that she had the right to vote. And one of the things that she said was, until then, I never heard of a mass meeting and I didn't even know a Negro could register to vote. Oh, my gosh. That's a quote that she has in her in her biography. Mm. Um, and one of the other things she said is once they told her that, she said, I could see myself voting those people out of office who I knew was wrong and didn't do nothing to help the poor people of Mississippi. Mm. And so she decided that she was going to be a volunteer to go to the courthouse that next Friday mm-hmm. and try to register to vote. And because she was a timekeeper on a plantation in that area, she was seen as a leader. Mm-hmm. And so people, when they saw her volunteer, they decided they were going to volunteer, too. So it was her and 17 other 17 others decided to go to the courthouse to vote. Even in the scales. Mm-hmm. Fixing those scales. Trying to even the scales. Wow. Right. So on August 31st, 1962, Hamer and 17 others went to the courthouse to attempt to register to vote. However, the registrar required them to take a literacy test. Yeah. This is yeah. one of those common tactics mm-hmm. that was used to prevent black people from voting because they knew that, for the most part, those poor sharecroppers were not educated enough to pass a literacy test. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even if they were, what they would often do was if a white person, if a poor white person who may have, who may have been uneducated also, mm-hmm. um, they would give them a literacy test, but the literacy test might have been like, say, the alphabet, mm-hmm. which they know that. Mm-hmm. But if a black person who could read and pass that easy literacy test would come, they would ask them to recite the Mississippi State Constitution. Wow. And... They don't know that by heart. I mean, no. who do, I don't who know my does? state constitution by heart, and it's available <laughs> right on the internet for me. So yes, and they wouldn't be able to pass. It would make it essentially impossible to yeah. register to vote. Mm. So they all failed the literacy test and were un- unable to vote. This was not the only consequence, though. They okay. fired Fannie Lou Hamer from her job. Wow! And kicked her off the plantation. They made her husband stay and work on the plantation until harvest season, and then they were going to get rid of him too. So she ended up having to move around and live with different people to avoid being homeless. Mm. And so one of the houses that she lived in, well, there was some some white men who found out where she lived and they did a drive by, shot the house up. Wow. Yeah. Trying to intimidate her. But look, Fannie Lou Hamer, her whole her mother's the faith that her mother instilled in her was so strong. She didn't let that intimidate her. She just continued to try to fight. So the next year. Uh, that would be 1963. She ended up becoming a field secretary for SNCC. Okay. And so she worked with SNCC to try to continue to get people registered to vote. Wow. And one of the things they wanted to do was there was a conference um, being held in Charleston, South Carolina, that they were all going to go to in order to learn more about how to get people to register to vote, okay. um, how to convince people uh, in these rural areas to vote. And so they took a bus uh, up there and they stopped in a city called Wyoming, uh, Wyona, Mississippi. Yeah, I've never heard of this place. Never I looked at it on, on the map. It's kind of like in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi. <laughs> I, um, I have this face like, oh, yeah. I don't know where this place is. So, okay. So they stop in Wyona, Mississippi, and they uh-huh. go to a, a lunch counter to try to eat. But they were denied service mm-hmm. by the waitress, mm-hmm. of course. Of course. Um, and then a police a state trooper pulls up while they're there and he pulls out his billy club and he starts trying to intimidate them. So one of the members of the party that was with Fannie Lou tries to take down his license plate number because he's like, you know, you can't just going to intimidate us. We're going to report you up to mm-hmm. your supervisor. His supervisor shows up, the police chief, and then arrests Fannie Lou Hamer mm. and several other people who were with her. They 
then took them to the jail and began beating them mm. in the booking room. So they didn't even, not even getting a chance to, to book them in. They started beating them. Mm-hmm. And then they took Fannie Lou Hamer and another woman into a cell and they ordered two male inmates to beat Fannie Lou and this woman. Mm-hmm. And they, they beat her. Um, they beat her with a what's called a blackjack. It was just like this leather, um, like a, a piece of leather, mm-hmm. like that would like surround like a, a piece of steel or mm. have like steel ball bearings in it. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and they beat her with that. They they put her dress up over her head mm-hmm. and groped her, and it was just dehumanizing yes. and humiliating. Humiliating. Just, yep. Mm. And they had beaten her so badly um, that it took her a month. To just recuperate enough to try to continue, you know, some of the civil rights work she was doing. Wow. And she never actually fully recovered physically from the abuse. Like mm-hmm. she had uh, permanent liver damage. Mm-hmm. Like that's how bad she was beaten. And even through all of that, one of one of the uh, things that Fannie Lou said in her um, autobiography was. She said that with all the hate, God is the only thing that has kept Negroes sane. Wow. And she just, she always leaned back into, like, her, her faith. faith in God. Mm-hmm, her faith mm-hmm. in God is what got her through these things. Um, so in 1964, she formed uh, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And this was because the Democratic par- state, the state Democratic Party of Mississippi was segregated. And okay, they wouldn't let... Okay. Um, they wouldn't let any black people the black join the party. Join. And so she, they formed their own party. Okay. And then they went to the National Democratic Convention, Democratic National Convention in 1964, and they demanded that they be seated at, to represent Mississippi instead of the segregated Mississippi wow. Democratic Party. Um, they actually allowed Fannie Lou to give a speech. And in her speech, she began to recount the story about the beating that she took. Um, the year prior. The president of the United States, Lyndon B. Johnson, began to get wind of the speech she was giving, and he preempted it with his own press conference to try to silence her. Wow. And the thing that he tried to silence her was like the, uh, with the speech he was giving was like the commemorating like the ninth, the nine-month anniversary of President Kennedy being killed. Like who, first of all, who commemorates a nine month anniversary of anything? <laughs> Normally random. it's a year yes. or, you know, the second anniversary, but it was because he wanted to silence her. Mm. What happened was it ended up backfiring because the news stations, while they did cut in with the president in the middle of her speech, they recorded the entire speech and played it later that evening in prime time. Mm. And so everybody heard it. Yeah. So, that they didn't end up getting set uh, seated um, that year, but by 1968, the next presidential election, the Freedom Party ended up getting seats mm. for the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party was desegregated because of Fannie Lou Hamer's work. Look at that! By 1972, Fannie Lou Hamer was voted as a she was voted as a uh, delegate to okay. have a vote for the Democratic Party. Um, for to represent the state of Mississippi, that's just yeah unbelievable. Yeah, that's yeah that's just you know, she's just she was putting in work. Yeah, she was putting in a lot of work. Um, she continued to she actually ran for Senate in 1964. Um, she didn't win. She ran for state that. Senate in 1964. Wow. Um, and she continued to work and and do a lot of uh, like set up a lot of um 
programs. She set up a program that helped house uh, to get housing for poor people Mm -hmm. in Mississippi. She set up a program um, called the Pig Project. And that helped because there was a lot of uh, people, poor people in Mississippi, sharecroppers who couldn't afford meat. So they, couldn't, mm. they didn't have protein. Okay. And so it was a lot to help them get meat and get protein so okay. that they could, you know, continue to work and, and, and be able to eat. Mm-hmm. So by 1974, Fannie Lou Hamer was in very poor health. Um, and in 1976, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. And then on March 14th, uh, 1977, she died of complications from breast cancer and hypertension. Now, she was young. Well, she wasn't that old. No. And a lot of that was because of that. Um, a lot of people believe that her life was shortened because of that beating mm-hmm. that she took in um, 1963. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was the thing that that you can use, that you can say that describes Fannie Lou Hamer and what inspired her to continue fighting her faith which was given to her by her mother and her father they were praying people she said she saw her mother pray every night mm. pray that their children would be protected pray that um you know overseers on the plantation wouldn't harm them every night she saw her mother pray and she saw her father pray that his children would have a better life than he did mm. and she took that those prayers you can see it affected her and she did the same thing she prayed on the campaign on the campaign trail or on the um, civil rights movement trail. She was known as a singer. She was singing gospel songs, um, and she was she was amazing. Her epitaph on her um, on her headstone mm-hmm. has one of the most famous quotes that people may know: mm-hmm. "I'm sick and tired of, of being, being sick and, and tired." tired. Mm-hmm. And that was what like that that line of thinking push Fannie Lou Hamer to continue to fight mm-hmm. regardless it's, of it's like a roar cry right yeah it's kind of like a roar cry like at some point you know you have to put the words into action yeah you know what are you going to do yep um wow yeah so yeah Fannie Lou Hamer like I said she's one of my heroes and part of the reason she's one of my heroes is because I like I I desire to have a faith like that mm-hmm. like the, the things I go through in my life are not as uh, <laughs> horrific and as the things that Fannie Lou Hamer has dealt with mm-hmm. yet I am tempted to to give up and, and stop fighting uh, of course but when I think about like women like Fannie Lou Hamer I'm like I can't stop fighting like she was literally literally physically beaten mm-hmm. and she kept fighting she kept her faith she didn't let people who claimed to have her faith yet didn't act that out uh, dissuade her from having faith in God, mm-hmm. and so I, I think that that's one of the main reasons why she's one of my one of my personal heroes. I mean, she didn't mean to, but in her attempt um, at getting like you know that equality and exercising her right to vote, she went up against the White House. Yeah. What? <laughs> like she went up against you know the leader. Yep. Um, you know, of the country. And I mean, really, she didn't have to do anything. It just seems like things were like divine and kind of in order and yeah. and moved in, um, in her favor, you yeah. know, for the people there yeah. with her. Wow. Yeah. She made really like lasting change that we mm-hmm. still see today. Yes. We still see the change today. So, yeah. That's- oh, that's awesome. I like that you chose. Um, I mean, I know you, you're my husband, so I, I know your <laughs> mindset. 
but that uh, you chose to share about a woman and that you're influenced by a woman, a, a female, um, a woman Christian. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of times, um, you know, we just forget about the women uh, in the faith. Yeah. Uh, which leads me to actually two women whom I like to share that many of you all may be familiar with. Um, but when I learned about these women recently, um, I just couldn't believe like who they were. So, um, I would like to share, uh, Perpetua and Felicity or Felicitas. And they were Christian martyrs, African Christian martyrs of the third century. Um, and they were living under Roman emperor, uh, and emperor rule in Northern Africa. Um, so Vibia, uh, Perpetua, ex- excuse me if I'm saying her name incorrectly, um, and you can help me out, Roland, uh, because right. I know you're familiar with them, too. <laughs> she was an African noblewoman and a new mother. Um, at the time of her martyrdom, she had recently uh, stopped nursing her, her child. Mm-hmm. Um, and Felicity was her maid servant, um, so she was um, enslaved to her family, a bond servant to her family, and she was actually eight months pregnant. When they were uh, jailed, when they arrest were arrested um, during the uh, Roman persecution of Christians, mm. so both uh, uh, Perpetua and Felicity they were thrown into um, what we would know as what I when I read about this I thought about the movie Gladiator, but they were thrown to the wild animals Ooh. and um, they were killed for their Christian faith at Carthage, um, and so that's kind of modern day. I think it's out. Uh, I think it's Tunisia. Tunisia. So still in Northern Africa. Um, But they were joined by three other uh, Christian, Christian male companions. And they all had professed Christ. And um, the, the way that we come to know about Perpetua um, is through her, her account. So I just wanted to share a little bit more about her and about Felicity um, with, and just some things that I just really felt, were just really important and I think are encouraging to um, to not only uh, uh, African-Americans or people of African descent in the faith, but to Christians, especially young Christians yeah. in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so Perpetua, she was about 22 years old. They said she was well off. She was a noble woman. She, you know, was an aristocrat, aristocrat or came from money. And um, she was a new mother, like I said. And so she wrote a detailed, a heartfelt, heartfelt like account of her last days up until when she, you know, she was thrown um, in for the games to celebrate like the Roman emperor. And um, her account is known as the passion Mm -hmm. of uh, St. Perpetua and St. Felicitas or Felicity and their companions. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you haven't read it, it's widely known. You can go in and read the account um, that she left. But it is really um, important because her account is widely known as like in the early church um, as an instructional document mm. for um, Christians and on how they should face persecution. Wow. wow. And um, her account was also one of the earliest documents of Christian martyrdom. So this is what we have this documented um, and she talked about really like the harshness of her life at that time, mm-hmm. um, being behind bars and um, the pain and anxiety that she felt being a new mother um, that she had felt for her baby because 
of course, she's in jail and she was breastfeeding and her child was taken away from her. And so she literally had physical pain mm-hmm. um, because if you've known anyone who has nursed or mm-hmm. um, like you also can get physical pain if you're away from your child and become engorged. Yeah. So she had that along with the beatings and the scourging and all of that stuff that was going on for her. Um, but she was able to. Her mother was able to bring her child to her because she was able to find favor from the jailers. And I think some of the jailers were, of course, paid off to be able to move her into a different part of the jail so that she could keep her baby with her. But she wrote about like the intense heat, because we know, you know, when it's a lot of people and we get together in one room, it gets real hot. And so she just air conditioning. Yeah. Yes. And she talked about that, like how suffocating it was. And um how she was able to just find relief and encouragement being with the other Christians. Her mother was a Christian and her father was a pagan. And um, she talked about how her mother and her brother um, would come to her and her father would come, but her father would come pleading. When I read in her accounts, her father would rip his, they they talked, she wrote about her father ripping his hair from his beard and from his Mm. head, like just begging her, pleading her to denounce Christ and to profess the pagan guys. And so she just kind of talked about how um, he couldn't persuade her to deny her faith. And she felt how she felt pity for him um, and how really uh, even throughout the trials of the Christians, like she refused like to provide a sacrifice to the Roman gods. Mm. Um, and that was in like, prayer for the emperor because they you know saw yeah. him as a as yep. a god yep. and so even you know even throughout that she said she felt m- more stronger in her faith and more emboldened in her faith um with all of that that was going on and so um she still was able to after the trial stand firm in her faith and i know her brothers they asked her you know well, what would god say to you because like many of these uh, African Christians or black Christians that we're talking about, they all were very devout in their prayers and in their, um, in their Christian faith. And they really felt led, um, by God. And she talked about, she account in her account, she talks about the vision that she had in her dream and of this ladder and how, um, she she felt like she was being called towards heaven. And, and she kind of felt like if she had looked back or, or, you know, look back or try to go back that she wasn't going to essentially get her reward. Like mm-hmm. she wasn't going to make it into heaven. Okay. And she goes into way more detail than what I'm given. But um, I just really felt like when she said when she woke up from that account, <clears throat> she had pretty much showed her brother and said, like, you know, we are going to die. And but we we're not fearful of the death because we know that, you know, there's life after this. And so um, she gives this account about I think being in a garden and seeing like this, um, I think this man with this white hair and he was with the sheep. And so, I, you know, I took that as her account with being with God mm-hmm. and being with the shepherd. And so um, it just was crazy. Like the women, she and Felicity, uh, Felicity, they were thrown to like a wild heifer and the men were thrown to, um, they were like tore up by a wild boar, a bear, a leopard, like all just for the masses, you know, and um, I just feel like it's just amazing to see how um, this rich woman who she wasn't a Christian, she had recently converted. They said she literally was like baptized and then taken immediately to a prison. Wow. Like I can't I like remember being baptized with you mm-hmm. and we talked about being baptized and just 
I know it was a celebratory time and like we I'm sure we went home and ate cake and just had a good old time. And they were baptized and went straight to prison. Like, that's just mind blown to me. Like you can be at a crossroads and like keep keep your life. But they chose not to. They just really felt um, convinced. Um, And I think their story is just it's something to show like, okay, well, they're new converts. But they were so young, too. They were between 20 and 22. And they both were like childbearing of childbearing age. Like literally, um, I believe they said that Felicity was sad. She was sad that she may not be uh, martyred with uh, Perpetual because she was pregnant. Because the Romans at the time felt yeah. like it was illegal. It was illegal yes. to kill. A, it was illegal to kill a yes, an unborn yeah. baby. Yeah. Now they had that mindset, right? They had enough sense to know, well, we can't kill this unborn yeah, child. But um, if she were to have the baby before, we can still throw her in the yeah. Then we can the, throw her down there wow. with the gladiators or with the you know the wild animals. So and <laughs> she was just like, I cannot let my sister go without me. Mm. And she ended up giving birth to the baby um, before uh, they were set to be killed. And they found a family to adopt the baby. And then, of course, um, a perpetuous family took her child. So just the thing to me was they laid down their lives really in spite of family members who really Mm -hmm. wanted them to not follow in their faith, despite, you know, their family's disapproval Mm -hmm. and um just in spite of them being young, I just remember being young and just like, I'm not sure if I really want to follow Christianity because like I got my whole life ahead of me. Uh, I right? can do it later. Yeah. Yeah. I can do it later. Like when I'm old, you know, and then I can, you know, follow a faith and, you know, I'm going to follow this belief system wholeheartedly when I'm out of my prime. Right. Yep. But these women were in their prime mm-hmm. and they chose to lay that down for something that they felt was bigger than them. Mm-hmm. And um, and then not only that, another thing that I really like, why I really wanted to share this was because <clears throat> Perpetua was rich. She was a, an aristocrat. Mm-hmm. And you could probably think of her like any modern day cele- um, celebrity mm-hmm. that's known or maybe the household is known or that's rich and that they would have maids or servants mm-hmm. or... Um, you know, my people. Let's say I have your people call my people or I have my assistant help me. Yep. Her assistant, <laughs> she saw her met her bond servant as equal to mm. her. They were equal. Mm. And they were equal under the Christian faith. Yep. They were like sisters. Like this, like it's just so much to like grasp yeah. from from them. Um, that's just really deep to me. But they were like on the same level and they understood we're equal in our Christian mm. faith. Um, and they were willing to be able to do that. And I also really just couldn't believe that here we are in like the third century. And there's a female writer here. She should not have been allowed to read or write. She was reading and writing. And we had this account that can be passed down, you know, not only as a Christian account, but as a historical account right. um, that many people have um, yeah. sought to. And um, and they're celebrated in many um, uh Lutheran yeah. and all, you know, yeah, the Eastern Orthodox, uh, Eastern Church, Orthodox yeah. Church. They know these women and they and they celebrate them as saints in the church as well. Yeah. But I just thought that it was really cool, just despite like their social economic status, that yeah. they were like, we're young and we believe in our faith and we're going to defend our faith. Yeah. And now we have um, perpetual yeah. felicity. Yeah. And I know in the third century, um, one of the main 
um, you know, they had all those councils and stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the main uh, issues that they had at a council around that time was what to do with people who denied Christ mm-hmm. under persecution. And I think okay. that their account was, like you said, it was used in as instruction manual. Mm-hmm. It was brought forth as evidence, like, no, you shouldn't deny Christ mm-hmm. even under the worst of persecution. Because here, look at these two women and their three companions. Like, yes. look at them. They didn't deny Christ, mm-hmm. along with uh, other people who around that time were under persecution and some mm-hmm. had denied Christ and it was a big thing. Like, should we allow them back in the church? And I mean, it, it was a whole, yes. it was a whole big issue. Yes. And, you know, it was something that they were working through at that time. And to have examples of just strong Christian women like that, mm-hmm. to be able to say, like, the emperor's not going to make me, like in the face of the emperor, you can't make me deny Christ. Mm-hmm. This bear can't make me deny Christ. These gladiators can't make me deny Christ. And the crowds cheering for my death cannot make me deny Christ. Like, that's, wow. It's amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Well. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I definitely, like, I know that a lot of times women in history in general, in Christian history specifically, I know from the things I've learned, like I didn't learn about a lot of Christian mm-hmm. women in history. Mm-hmm, I didn't um, Whether it was like modern times or back in the early Ancient. centuries. Mm-hmm. So I think that as we dig more into this, as we dig more into history, we're going to definitely, we're going to definitely get into some more women, some more strong Christian women, and how their faith just continue to inform and continue to reverberate throughout mm-hmm. the century. So, so I think that's all we got for today. Yes. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, we hope that you come back and join us for uh, the next episode, and we'll see you then. <laughs>